0: This evening we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 10, but if you will, let's begin in Malachi 3. Malachi 3. I'll let you take a moment to get there. I hope all of you are at Malachi chapter 3, and I'd like to read a small passage to you and with you before we begin our study of Revelation, that you may have these words in your mind and in your hearts before we begin. It is an interesting statement that is made at the end of this book. Malachi, the last prophet of the the Old Testament volume or canonization of the Bible, the actual Old Testament prophet, the last one was John the Baptist. But listen to what is said here. Verse 16 of chapter 3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise. With healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. As we come to Revelation chapter 10, I pl- place these words in your mind and in your heart. The distinction the Lord draws between the wicked. And the righteous, the remembrance of those who are his. We know that during this time that the Bible has so much to say about, this seven year period of time, multitudes will be saved, but will go through and be sustained by the Lord during one of the most troublesome times of all history. The judgment of the Lord is an aspect of Christianity that we cannot escape. For the consummation of all things to return, to be reconciled unto God and to be renewed, judgment must first take place. You cannot separate the two. It is when all are required to give an account for what they have done. It's a time where God calls everybody to be responsible for their own actions before him. It is a time where he will identify those who are his and those who are not. It is a time where he again will hold this world accountable for the rebellion that it has leveled against him for so long. The judgment of God. As we proceed in Revelation, we have completed six of the trumpet judgments and through each of the judgments, we've discovered that more and more of the natural resources that man had used to prosper himself have been destroyed. Up until this point, we have already lost about a half of the population of the world. We are now entering into the midpoint of a, three, a, seven, and a seven year period. Three and a half years have transpired. And we are now getting close to that middle section a seven-year period of time that was outlined in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And here we find ourselves in the midst of it all, having to remember that God shows a distinction between those who are His and the wicked. Because literally from chapter 10, this second of two parenthetical passages found in the book of Revelation, here and in chapter 7, between the seventh seal... I'm sorry, the 6th and 7th seal. And between the 6th and the 7th trumpet, we find a parenthetical chapter, a moment of pause, where details are given as the events that are about to happen are preceded by a moment of consideration. We are now in that moment when within the trumpet blow of the 7th angel we are going to discover that there are a series of seven more judgments that are about to take place against the earth, the bowl judgments. They are going to happen in very fast concession, one right after another. And as a result, things are going to speed up very quickly. But it's going to be a time like no other, a time where it will obviously be horrific for those who go through it. As we come to chapter 10, we must ask ourselves the question Are you personally looking forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? As a Christian, I don't know who would say no. In fact, Titus, Paul writes it as our blessed hope the knowing that Christ is going to return as he promised he would. We all look forward to that time of reconciliation where God then uh, renews this world, renews heaven and eliminates any stain of sin and of death. It's an imperative portion of Christianity. It's an important part of our theology as Christians. Because it's at that time that there will be no more injustice, no more corruption, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death. But if we look objectively at the process in which we need to go through to get there, we will discover very quickly we all want to arrive at the end, but the road is going to be very rough along the way. But remember that distinction that God draws between the wicked and the righteous. As we begin here, let us read chapter 10 together before we look at it more closely. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. "'wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. "'And his face was like the sun "'and his legs like pillars of fire. "'He had a little scroll open in his hand, "'and he set his right foot on the sea "'and his left foot on the land "'and called out with a loud voice "'like a lion roaring. "'When he called out, "'the seven thunders sounded. "'And when the seven thunders sounded, "'I was about to write,' But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what is the seven thunders thunders had said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what what was in it. And there would be no more delay but that in that day of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel the mysteries of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me saying go and take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land so I went and to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll and he said to me take it Eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I looked, and I took, I should say, the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, and languages, and kings. A bittersweet moment, to say the least. All of us have had bittersweet moments in our lives. We know what that term means. Good and bad accompanied all in one experience. That's really what we see happening here before us. As we begin, we must understand the different players of our chapter. We have an angel. We have John. We have a a scroll, a little scroll, and we have a thunder, seven thunders from heaven. What does all of this mean and why are we being given this information as we come through the book of Revelation together? That's what we'll look to find today in our time together. Let us begin with the appearance of the angel in the first four verses as John vividly describes them for us. As he says here in verse 1, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. And he gives us an elaborate description. Wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, his face like, was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. And he had a little scroll open in his hand and set his right foot on the sea, his left foot on land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring, and when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, "Seal up uh, what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down." We begin with an angel. He is introduced as another mighty angel. There are some commentators who proceed to identify this individual as Christ. But the word that is used for another is Elion, which means another of the same kind. As we have been introduced to angels previous in this, in this book, we are now being uh, revealed another uh, angel, another of the same kind. I don't believe this is Jesus Christ, but we do have a vivid description of him. The components of the description are all derived from the Old Testament. Clouds, the rainbow, the legs of the pillars of fire. We have the uh, face as a sun and so forth. And as a result, we get an idea of the, the... Uh, position in which the angel has come, the understanding of why he has come and what he is bringing about and what will proceed from him. In all of the Old Testament, all of these signs are signs of judgment. Judgments that are to come. The rainbow was a symbol that was obviously used in the Old Testament book of Genesis to assure God's covenant people that mercy would be found them and that God would never judge by a flood again. Today, the meaning of the rainbow has been so skewed and it is being used in ways that we thought never imagined. Some believe that that symbol has been adopted by organizations because it depicts ju- that, just that, I should say, that God in their minds will never judge again. That's not what God said. God said that he would never bring a flood again. He did not say that he would not judge again. Two different things. But in here we have that duality. In the pillars of fire in his legs, there, there's unrelenting judgment that is found in the, in the same symbolism that is found in the Old Testament. He is here for a purpose. The judgment will proceed, and even though judgment is proceeding from him over his head, mercy is still there. The duality of nature of this judgment. Because we know that those who receive the gospel during this time will be saved, and mercy is still possible. But for those who continuously rebel and who resist the grace of God will experience judgment i think it's important for all of us to know the incredible time in which we live today a time where the mercy of god flows freely to those who would receive him do not wait for tomorrow to take the opportunity to share with your friends and family about the grace of god and the person of jesus christ don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today The Bible says today is the day of salvation. How important is this message to you? Do you have a loved one in your family who isn't a Christian and you so much desire that they would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Understand that in their rebellion they will face the judgment, the wrath of God apart from Christ. How important is it that we who know Christ Take the gospel to them that they may have an opportunity to repent and find salvation in Jesus Christ. But I think it is interesting that even in a a moment like this, when such devastation has already occurred on this earth, John sees this angel appear enormous in size. It says here that he places his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. It's figurative and it it demonstrates that what is occurring is worldwide. It is meant to encompass the entire world. As one commentator wrote that in chapter 10 is the chapter in which God puts down his foot and says no more. I am taking back that which was lost what man gave over to Satan at the fall, I am now taking back for myself. For in the message that we will discover this evening, the essence of it is this. There will be no more delay. The, it's coming. The end is near. I mean, very near. No more waiting. There is no more delay. And in that moment of time, The mystery of God will be revealed that he will once again reclaim all that has been forsaken by man through their rebellion and sin and God will will once again reconcile it all to himself, bring it back to himself, renew it all, new heavens, new earth, etc. God putting his foot down over all the world. It's important also that we discover here that angels played an immense role in the Bible. Have you ever thought about angels? Now I know that all of you had probably asked at one time or another, do guardian angels actually exist? That seems to be the most frequent question that people have about angels. But what do you actually know biblically about angels? We see they show up at some of the best times in the Bible, don't they? They're described in some of the most magnificent ways. But they are created beings. They are not equal with God. They are created beings by God. We also know that angels are known for their integrity, their goodwill, and their obedience to the Lord. Angelos means messenger. They are one who serves and brings the message of God to whoever he sends it to. Angels have often interacted with people throughout the Bible and sometimes without the people even knowing it. Be careful in who you entertain, for you might find yourself entertaining angels. They watch over God's people from Israel to the church. They watched over the birth of Christ as Gabriel himself preceded the birth of Jesus. And here at the end of all things, we see them instrumental in the work of God. We know that angels have classifications such as angel, cherubim, or seraphim. Significance and some type of hierarchy in which they hold. They are named. We know three of them. Michael, Gabriel. Does anybody know the third? Clock is ticking. Satan, absolutely. Angels that fell with Satan are now considered demons. As a third of the angels fell with Satan on that day that Satan rebelled and was cast down. But what about guardian angels? Again, that's the question that I get more often than not. And it derives from Psalms 91, 11, and 12 when the psalmist wrote, "...for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." Or Hebrews one fourteen, they have applied to this guardian angel idea. Are they not, that is speaking of angels, all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Do we have a specific assigned guardian angel? Well, I'm not sure of that. I'd sure like to think so, wouldn't you? I know that there are times where I couldn't believe that I had been spared a travesty. For example, shortly before I became a Christian, I was in in high school when I came to Saving Faith in Jesus Christ. And one day after school, I went with one of my older friends in his tricked out, souped up car. It was spectacular. It was fast. It was a head-turner, and I knew if anything would help me get a girlfriend, it would be riding in that car. And I wanted to show off for some friends and some girls. So we were following someone home one day, and they proceeded to stop to drop someone off, but we wanted to show off like the mature individuals that we were. And we decided to fly by them to show how cool we actually were. And as we flew by them, we're on a side street of 25 miles an hour, and I believe the car hit about 57 miles an hour. But what we didn't know is that the road turned subtly, and we went into a light post at 55 miles an hour. Those who were behind us said the rear end of the car went up four feet in the air, because we hit so hard. The engine had come in through the windshield and into the dashboard. And I walked out of that car with a minor scratch. In fact, when the rescue people came on the scene, they had to pry my friend out and the young man that was in the back seat. They didn't even realize that I had been in the car itself because I had such minor injuries. And they said, were you in this accident? I said, I was. And they said, I don't understand. And they showed me the passenger side. I said, I don't understand either. And they said, well, did you have your seatbelt on? Of course, as a mature individual, responsible, no. I didn't. And so as they began to piece the accident together, they discovered that the only thing that held me in the car from not flying through the windshield was that I happened to hit the sun visor before I went through. I want to believe that that was an angel holding me in. Why is it? Because one of the people in that car I began to date, and it was her father who led me to Jesus Christ. I wonder if Satan wanted something different. And God said, no. I don't know. I'd like to believe that, though. And I'm so thankful that I'm here today. But all of us have had those moments where you just wonder if the hand of God is not watching over you. Well, I say he is. And if he uses angels, so be it. But angels play a huge role in the Bible, and I believe we see an angel here in our text. He is now standing on the sea and on the land, showing that dominion is now about to be returned to God. And when he called out with a loud voice, it roared like a lion. And when he called out, verse 3, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up for what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. He was anticipating that it would be his responsibility to write these things that he saw. But at this moment in time, as the seven thunders sounded again, thunder is used throughout the Old Testament to indicate the voice of God or God's judgment. Is this God speaking? We don't know for sure. But the angel did not want John to spend any more time and he was told not to write it up but to leave it and to proceed with what was about to be given him. And in verse 4, and when again the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard the voice from heaven saying, seal up the seven thunders. And he said, do not write it. As Daniel in Daniel chapter 12 says, was instructed by God to seal up what he was being given because the time had not yet come. It appears no more attention is to be given and these aren't meant to be known by you and I. So to speculate or to formulate opinions would be worthless. We don't know what was said at this moment, but something was said. And then we proceed. Because after the angel appears, we now see that the angel has an announcement to bring. We have a scroll that is in his hand. And there is great debate if this is the scroll of... Revelation 5, that Jesus took out of the hand of God the Father himself, and we talked about that, we discussed the significance of it, that scroll being written on the inside and the outside, sealed with seven seals. We went through all of those details together. But now the seventh seal had been opened, the seven trumpets have proceeded from that seventh seal. And so the scroll could be opened, and this could be that scroll. Or it could be another scroll, another written order in which the angel is about to execute on behalf of God. We don't know and therefore cannot be dogmatic about it. But in either case, what is written on that scroll is about to take place. It appears to be the marching orders. It appears to be the events that are now going to take place at the hand of this angel. And John is here to listen and to understand. And the angel whom I saw standing, verse 5, on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. Then there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. This is where we get the true essence of all that we are looking at this evening. In this fact that there will be no more delay, this is it. As chapters 11 through 19 will go very quickly, and there will be events that are very significant that transpire during that time, but it's going to go very quickly from now until the end. And the angel is saying that this mystery that the prophets had predicted and had known about is now going to come to fruition. What is the mystery of God that would be fulfilled? I believe Revelation 11.15 tells us what this mystery is. In Revelations 11.15, John writes, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying and here is the mystery the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our lord and of our of his christ and he shall reign forever and ever the return what man had forfeited what christ had paid for to be redeemed is now actually being Consummated by God. He is taking now ownership, possession of that which Christ paid for. And all the years that have transpired since the time that Christ has come in his first advent to his return, this era of grace, the era of the church, this time of the Gentiles, is a time in which God gave people an opportunity to repent and to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, but now he's saying that time is coming close to an end. That's what he's saying here. As the Old Testament prophets talked about this time in many different ways, what they knew about, and what was waited for and anticipated by all the Jewish people, and now us as Christians. If you remember correctly, when Jesus came the first time, what was their uh, thought and expectation of his arrival? What did they think that he was there to do? And when he didn't fulfill that expectation, they turned on him. And they cried for another one called Barabbas. Well, they honestly believed that the Messiah's coming was going to usher in the second zenith of their nation's history to return them to the glory of the years of David, that he was going to be their great liberator from the oppression of Rome. He was going to lead them into freedom. He was going to return them to what they once were. Now God's saying all of that is happening now. That's why the religious leaders were so confused. And that's why they honestly believed that there were two messiahs at one time. Some Jewish lines felt that, but they couldn't they couldn't reconcile that. How can he be victorious? How can he be suffering? How can he do this and that? Well, they didn't anticipate so that he was going to have a first coming and a second coming. And in his first coming, he came and paid for everything through his death and validated through his resurrection. Now, he's taking ownership uh, he, I don't want to use this because it's too loosely, but it's a, it's a way to think about it. He put it on layaway. Now he's coming back for it. He paid for it all. The kingdom of God has started. He's collecting his people day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. The church is growing. People are getting saved, coming out of darkness into light, out of death into life. But now the physical the physical reconciliation of all of creation, the return and the renewal is about to take place, that is the mystery that is about to be revealed. As one commentator wrote in his commentary, commentary, that is the purpose, that is purpose in this fact that the kingdom of God is clearly seen in Revelation 11.15. Where following the seventh trumpet, the heavenly voices proclaim the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will reign forever and ever. Down through the centuries, the church has prayed, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Taking this stand between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, John declares that there will be no more delay. The time is now. As John Wolverd wrote in his, this mystery had been previously announced to God's prophets. The reference, therefore, is not uh, to a hidden truth, but to the fulfillment of many Old Testament passages which refer to the glorious return of the Son of God and the establishment of His kingdom of righteousness and peace on this earth. Let's remember in Revelation 6.10, those who were crying out to God and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth the time is now and so understand that in this last portion of this judgment from 11 on the wicked of this world is dealt with very decisively and specifically it'll climax in Revelation 19 the great Babylon the dragon, the beast will be dealt with it's going to be an incredible read going forward but this is it. This is the angel standing there with the scroll in his hand saying, this is it. And in verse 8, it is required of John now for the appropriation of this book. Let's read together. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go and take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. Notice how that's referenced consistently. In all three points, that the angel stood on the sea and on the land, showing and demonstrating that this was a final, final declaration that was be made over all the world. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. I think that's very bold in and of itself. An angel that is capable of standing on the sea and on the land, and John, little John going right up to him, "Hey, give me that scroll." he must have felt very confident in what God was asking him to do so I went and I told him to give me the little scroll and he said to me take it and eat it it will make your stomach bitter but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey what an extraordinary thing to have John do but it's not unprecedented is it again if we look back into the Old Testament we find that this has happened before hasn't it for Ezekiel was required to eat of that which God was giving him. If you turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 2 verses 8 through chapter 3 verse 3, you'll find that that which was given to Ezekiel must be appropriated in the same way. He must truly understand it. He must digest it, meditate upon it. He must clearly understand what God is asking him to do and the consequences of those things. Listen to these words to Ezekiel. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me and behold, a scroll of a book was in it and he spread it before me. And I ha- and it had writing on the front and on the back, very similar to what we have here in Revelation. And there was written on it the words of lamentation, of mourning and woe. That's why many believe that this is the scroll that is found in Revelation five. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat and he said to me son of man feed your belly with this scroll that i give you and fill your stomach with it then i ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey later on i believe in the chapter it says that though it turned to bitterness within him as it began to unfold and we see that same thing here why was it sweet because this was the finality this was the this was it the hope was about to be realized Everything that we've waited for in great anticipation is about to come about. But then, as John began to contemplate and understand and consider, it was bitter. Because the road to get there was going to be devastating, it was going to be hard, it was going to be horrific. I think that reading the book of Revelation should be a bittersweet experience for every single Christian. It should be a a sweet experience in knowing that God is in control and is going to bring about the end just as he planned and purposed to do so. And that he will return things to the way they were meant to be and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and we will be there with him. But it also should be bitter to us. Knowing that there's a weight of judgment that is upon each and every person who is apart from Christ. See, what many people don't understand today, and certainly I would say many Christians don't understand today, is that what Christ experienced on the cross was meant for them. Do you understand that? We've looked at that in detail over the last couple of years, the darkness, the separation, the death that Christ experienced experienced on the cross the judgment that was poured out upon him the wrath of god that was poured out upon him was due to you to you and i it was owed us and it was placed upon him and we by faith in him and repentance received his life in exchange for ours and now god the father looks through christ and sees us Pure, Though our sins were as scarlet, now we're as white as snow. It's an incredible thing to consider. That should have been us. For those who decide and continue to rebel against God, that will be them. And that's what they're going to see here. That's what they're going to experience here. And that's why it is a bittersweet moment for John. Because he knows that the end is near and God is going to return and Christ is going to reign and usher in a new heaven and a new earth. But getting there is going to be horrific. It's going to be a bittersweet thing. When Jeremiah was given the words of the Lord to him, he wrote in Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me joy and I delight in my heart for I am called by your name o lord god of hosts when david wrote in the psalms in psalm 19:9 9, and 10 david stated the ordinances of the lord are sure and altogether righteous they are more precious than gold than much more pure than gold and they are sweeter than honey the honey from the comb Though the word is sweet to believers, it will be bitter to unbelievers when it brings divine judgment upon them. This is, I believe, one of the most sorely lacked understanding in the hearts and the minds of Christians today. I'm amazed at how many Christians approach this world, approach their friends and family as if they had forgotten that at one time they themselves were also children of wrath. How is that possible? How is it possible that we have forgotten what Christ has done for us and we no longer desire to show the same grace to our fellow man that Christ has showed us? Even Jesus himself in his coming says, I have not come to condemn the world for the world is condemned already. And when I see some of the posts that are made on Facebook by people who think they are being righteous and bold for God, do they even understand the perception in which they are declaring? I often do not see an attitude of humility. Rarely do I see an attitude of grace but of, often of self-righteousness. I think we need to be very, very careful. God is the judge. Obviously, we don't want to participate in anything that God would not have us participate in, and it is not wrong for us to say that those actions that God has deemed sin as sin. There's nothing wrong with us saying that at all. We're not judging somebody because we say that something that God has said is sin is sin. But we are never to condemn anybody. That condemnation cannot come from us, but only from God. And that's what John, I believe, saw here. But he wasn't finished yet. He needed to understand that there was still yet more to come, and that's where it brings us to verse 10. And I took in the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter after I really considered it, as I really began to contemplate it, of course I'm adding that, and I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, and languages, and kings. There is still yet more to come. I'd like to close with the words of one of my favorite pastors, Chuck Swindoll. He stated in his commentary on Revelation, he said this at the end of his Conclusion, concluding of this chapter. It is true that the gospel of Jesus Christ involves both bad news and good news. Bad news about lost human subjects to divine judgment. But good news about the righteous redeemer, Jesus Christ, who paid the complete penalty for us who uh, and saves us when we simply trust him. As ambassadors for Christ in this age, we must not only understand and accept the gospel for ourselves, but we also must be able to communicate that message with others. Have you accepted God's commission on your life? Or like John, are you ready for a recommissioning from God? John, I have more for you to say, more for you to do. John heralding this as he's witnessing this vision before him there, exiled on the island of Patmos. Could you imagine being John there on that island and this vision being given to you by God and thinking, I don't know how I'm going to get off this island to tell anyone. And yet God made it a way for him to do that. But this is it. This is the middle point. This is the uh, overture before the final act. That's what we have here in chapter 10. As the angel stands there with the scroll in his hands and begins to declare the fact that there shall be no more delay, but the mystery of God in this world will be fulfilled that the prophets knew about. This is it. But John, I want you to eat of this scroll Understand that when you first do, it'll be as sweet as honey, but then your stomach will turn bitter because of it. And as we continue now to proceed through the book of Revelation together, we're going to take each chapter together, and we're going to look at it, and we're going to try to show you and demonstrate how things are going to unfold in this time. And we are going to see incredible things take place here on this earth. And yet, remember the words of Malachi. I know those who are mine. I distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. And as he moves through this time of judgment, those who are sealed and have come to faith in him, he will watch over and protect. But it will be a horrific time. Many of those will stand up in rebellion against the Antichrist as the Antichrist asks for allegiance from all of them and to demonstrate that allegiance they must receive his mark and when they refuse they will be executed for their refusal to do so. Their faith will need to be demonstrated in martyrism during this time in a horrific period of time. And then as the Antichrist and Babylon and all of that is dealt with, we come to Revelation 19 where the clouds break and the rider of the white horse in the clouds returns. Jesus Christ. Establishing his kingdom for a thousand years, Revelation 20, and then going into 20 and 21, the new heavens and the new earth are created. That's what we have yet to look forward to. A lot has occurred up to this point. But there is still yet a lot to come next. And that's what we're going to look at. As it becomes very obvious to all of us, revelation is a bittersweet moment.